Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Eileen Ramia. Today, I have the great honor of having Josh Sussberg as a guest to chat about his foray into law and bankruptcy, a look back on bankruptcy over the course of his career, and his views on where the restructuring and the distressed industries are likely headed given the current macroeconomic environment. Josh is a partner in the restructuring practice group of Kirkland & Ellis and a member of the firm's executive committee. He has been described as a tenacious dealmaker and gifted courtroom advocate that possesses exceptional judgment and a unique ability to work with opposing parties to form consensus and resolve matters. Josh is consistently recognized as one of the nation's leading restructuring lawyers, including one of the top 100 restructuring professionals with a distinction in dealmaking by the Global M&A Network and one of the top 16 bankruptcy attorneys in the country by Business Insider in 2022. He is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy. Bloomberg Law reported that Josh is, quote, possibly the most ubiquitous bankruptcy attorney in the U.S. His recent representations include, among others, serving as counsel to Voyager Digital, Celsius Network, BlockFi, Avaya, Cineworld, David's Bridal, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Envision Healthcare in each of their respective Chapter 11 cases. As someone who has worked with him before in the past, I can attest that all these things are true. So I'm incredibly honored to have him here with me today. Thank you for being here, Josh. Thank you for having me. So I first want to start off by discussing your career trajectory and how you decided to enter law and become an attorney. So could you share a bit about why you decided to go to law school? Sure. I went to Syracuse University to the communications school there and started off uh, in broadcast journalism. I thought I wanted to be on SportsCenter. Oh, that's so cool. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, and then I realized that uh, getting to SportsCenter was going to require a lot of long, tough hours in odd places um, (laughs) with a little bit of pay. Um, And so I switched to public relations probably my junior year and decided I was going to go to law school. Uh, the rest was history. Here you are. There you go. So how are things at Kirkland? Everything is it's great at Kirkland. I am um, super humbled and proud uh, to be able to work at Kirkland. Uh, it's an incredible firm. You know, people talk about culture all the time, and it's something that's hard to define. But when you see it, you know it. And I get an opportunity you know, every single day to walk around the halls at our office, You know, not only with our group, but the collaborative effort that we have across the entire firm. And it's a a pretty special thing because over the 30 years that Kirkland's been doing restructurings, it's not just the 200 people that do restructuring 100% of the time. It's the five or 600 people across the firm that have expertise in their specific areas. And it allows us to bring to bear um, a suite of services and a suite of people that really can't be matched. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is I am so happy to be able to see young attorneys get great opportunities. You know, for me, when I went to Kirkland, it was all about opportunities and getting a chance to kind of rise above and punch a little bit above your weight. And I think our focus is making sure that our young attorneys get the most experience they can more than anyone else in the country. And I think that leads to an exciting atmosphere. Uh, It's a culture carrier and it's, it's a great opportunity for young lawyers. Well, I remember when I was the first year at Kirkland, I actually got to present a motion in court I think six months in, which was incredibly exciting and terrifying at the same time to say the least. So I 
I agree with you about that. Yeah, it's um, it's a special thing, and I think it's you know kind of our secret sauce. It separates us, I believe, from from other firms, and it really is a nuance and a difference because, you know, it's it's people, it's clients, and it's it's your reputation. And I've heard people say that before, but you know, it sounds simple. It really is something that you know you have to work on and you have to keep at. And giving people opportunities at a young age instills all those qualities and powers in people. So how did you get into bankruptcy? Why why bankruptcy of all things? I, I really want to get a sense of what motivates you to do this kind of work. Like what about it really drives you? Yeah, so I didn't even know what lawyers did other than what I saw on TV before I went to law school. And so, you know, the whole world of corporate law and structuring and tax for that matter was foreign to me. I had an opportunity as a summer associate to go to Wild Gotchell. And when we got to Wild Gotchell, some people knew exactly what they wanted to do. Others like me were told, if you have no idea what you want to do, you can rotate through four different practices. And so I went through corporate, litigation, real estate, and I chose bankruptcy because they had a great reputation and were representing Enron, WorldCom, and Global Crossing at the time. And for me, it just became pretty evident and clear that the restructuring practice seemed incredibly unique and a real opportunity to get a benefit and a blend of everything I had seen from corporate and from litigation. And for me, the most exciting part was I was told as a summer associate that if you come back into restructuring, you will have an opportunity to get into court early. Whereas I saw on the litigation side, you know, people could wait decades until they have their chance to be in court. And I think that there's a part of me that was pulled to this by, you know, happenstance, but also some memories. My uh, father was in the home building business um, back in the 80s uh, and the early 90s. And there was a recession in the late 80s and early 90s, and his home building business evaporated. And all I remember deep down in the back of my brain is my father yelling out that he was not going to go bankrupt. So (laughs) I think that had some influence probably on me. Yeah. Um, But just the practice itself seemed so exciting, and I figured I would give it a try for a year or two. And here I am. Yeah, here you are. And so it really resonated with you. It did. It um, it really felt like you could make an impact on, you know, both advising and serving as effectively a consigliere to companies, right. but also saving and, and helping nurse back to health, right, distressed and sick companies. There was something about that that just seemed like, wow, I could make a difference. Yeah. So you sort of touched upon a personal experience of yours, and I kind of want to dive a bit deeper, only to the extent you're comfortable. Sure. So what sorts of other personal experiences, if any, that you've had that have impacted your perspective and your approach to things? Listen, the most important thing to me is my family, uh, my wife and three sons. Yeah. And um, I always wanted to set an example of showing them that, you know, you got to earn every single thing you do every single day. And it really kind of presented itself to me. Uh, I got sick in 2016 and I was out for eight months Um, And it was a really difficult time for everybody in the family. But the reality for me all along was all I wanted to do was get back to work because I knew I loved it so much to the point where my doctor thought it was crazy. You know, some people (laughs) go through this experience and then they go do what they want to do. And I kept saying, I'm doing what I want to do and I want to go do it ASAP. And that really has given me real perspective. And I probably used to think about it a thousand times a day and then it was a hundred times a day and now it's a couple times a day. But I think that really helps center me and kind of keep my eye on the prize as to what I want to accomplish. That's awesome. And so you really find your purpose in, in this in this kind of work. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I, I think it's uh, it's different every single day. Um, yeah. Obviously, all the companies are different. Uh, you get to meet a lot of interesting people. 
and you get to provide, you know, advice as to how you can keep these businesses going or frankly avoid uh, a Chapter 11 and a formal restructuring. And uh, I find that to be really exciting. I enjoy waking up every single day to do it. You know, some days are, are better than others, but right. uh, overall, it's, it's a great practice. Wonderful, Josh. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. So, Josh, you've been working in bankruptcy for about two decades now. You're, You're making me it. feel old. Yeah. <laughs> You've been going at it for a while, to say the least. Um, what sorts of changes, if any, have you observed in restructuring, particularly in how companies have approached bankruptcy over the course of your career? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily good, bad. It just is, right? When I started out, companies used to file for bankruptcy. You would, you know, calm things down from an operational perspective. Then you would work and try to get to a business plan. And then you'd meet with creditors and you know, the restructurings took 18, 24 months, right? It could be, right. it could be years. Over the course of the last, you know, 15 plus years, things have really accelerated. And, you know, pre-packs and pre-arranged plans, you know, people talk about those like you can buy one at Walmart. Yeah. Um, but, you know, moving cases quicker yeah. uh, has definitely changed. And obviously Congress adjusted the exclusivity provisions uh, to reduce what was, you know, unlimited exclusivity. And now it's 18 months total. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a good thing because businesses don't need to be in bankruptcy for a long time. And the reality is that if you can avoid a bankruptcy, that's always our focus. Um, and the long drawn out bankruptcies that are litigious are the ones that, you know, frankly, are the worst from, you know, an industry perspective. Um, and those are the ones that, you know, don't lead to more opportunities from a practitioner perspective. What do you think bankruptcy's purpose should be? You talked a bit about how having a reduced timeline is 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 good and beneficial for companies because it allows them to get in and out and, you know, get their issues addressed. What purpose should it be serving? Yeah. And, you know, I, the one thing I'd say to that, too, is, you know, to the extent you have a prearranged or a prepackaged bankruptcy, the reality is that it takes a lot of pre-planning. Yeah. And so the amount of time that we're helping facilitate these types of transactions hasn't necessarily changed okay. from when I was talking about 20 years ago. But one thing remains the same, and it's a common theme throughout. The bankruptcy code is a rehabilitative tool. Uh, it gives companies a chance to continue to survive because there's always more value in a going concern. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a few footnotes there where liquidation value would exceed the going concern. But the fundamental premise behind the enactment of the bankruptcy code remains the same today. And there are companies, for whatever reason, maybe over-levered, maybe burdened by tort claims. They should have a chance to be able to rehabilitate themselves and continue to provide value and service to customers, clients, counterparties, you know, forever and ever. Yeah, definitely. Lastly, I want to talk about this sort of trends that are emerging in bankruptcy, if, you know, that you've observed. So there's been talk of a wave of bankruptcy akin to what we experienced with the global financial crisis in 2009, basically since we emerged from that crisis. However, that didn't come to fruition. We had ultra low interest rates, quantitative easing and monetary policy that really pumped substantial liquidity into the markets and allowed for, quote, easy money. Then came the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, and likely as a result of unprecedented fiscal policies and response in conjunction with a monetary policy playbook that the Federal Reserve used that was actually developed in connection with the great financial crisis. This much-talked-about great bankruptcy wave of 2020 also did not materialize. Now, however, we're sort of in a different posture. Uh, we have inflation, although there have been signs that that may be cooling. We have macroeconomic factors like the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, among other things, and the sort of general sentiment that this era of easy money is likely over. We actually have also seen an uptick in filings recently. 
Do you think we're at a turning point right now? Is this finally the moment? I'd be in Las Vegas if I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I, you know, my perspective on this is like from 2009 up until the pandemic, right, there were different industries that were stressed. And so we spent a lot of time on oil and gas. Um, we spent a lot of time on retail as a result of the Amazon impact. There was generally restructurings, notwithstanding that the economy was doing so well. Um, I think 2020 was probably the busiest five months that we ever had from you know March to November. But like you said, it stopped on a dime. And as soon as that easy money came into the system, right, everything really slowed. And we saw 21 and most of 22 as maybe the slowest we had ever been. We saw a huge uptick in restructurings, conversations, both in and out of court starting last summer around June. Um, and it really started with crypto, which you know maybe was episodic, but it ended up leading to you know much broader discussions. And as I look at it now, it's not just one particular industry, right? There's stress you know, throughout the system. Yeah. Um, and companies that had access to easy money no longer have that access. And it's causing a lot of difficult and tough conversations, whether it's on amend and extends or formal restructurings. And so there is significant activity out there in the marketplace over the last 12 months. And I do expect and see that to continue. I think people are generally pretty busy. And, you know, like I said, if we can save a company from a chapter 11 and avoid a restructuring, that is always the goal. And there's a lot of discussions with companies right now about liability management, which is a, a vogue term, and trying to get to a place where lenders provide relief and people can bridge to see, you know, what the economic impact will be of everything that's happening in the environment, whether to your point, it's inflation, it's rates, instability with rates. Are they going to go up? Are they going to come down? You know, if inflation's going up, the rates are going to have to go up. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And at the same time, a lot of companies are sitting there in that uncertain environment with maturities right. and with concerns. And, you know, you don't want to force a company's hand too soon. But at the same time, right, all the lenders and the entire community is looking there saying, do we think this is going to get better? So in light of this, what do you think restructuring will look like down the road if borrowing costs are made high? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see activity. I don't necessarily think it's going to be the rash of filings and activities that we saw in the recession of 08 and 09, but it could be a period of time that's longer okay. uh, and more sustained, right? 08 and 09 was kind of a flash. It was a year and a half pandemic was five months, you know, this has already been a good year or so, and I don't expect that to change for a little while. What do you think companies should consider as they navigate this sort of environment? I always preach to companies that, you know, thinking about these issues ahead of time and pre-planning and coordinating is incredibly important. Too many times, you know, we'll get a call and it's a little bit too late. And there could have been potentially solutions or there could have been planning that would have led to a different outcome. And so while it's easy for me to say to a company that you need to start thinking about these things, you know, companies generally don't want to hear the word restructuring or the word bankruptcy for that matter. But I think you need to be able to anticipate, you know, what your next couple of years look like. And are there going to be audit concerns? Do you have liquidity that you need to not only run the business, but satisfy your indebtedness obligations? And I never think it's it's too early to look at that and be strategic in how you think about it, because you're not making decisions. You're just being ready. Uh, and I think it's super important. Josh, it has truly been a pleasure and honor to have you as a guest here today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights as well as about your career. 
And thank you to our listeners for tuning into DebtWire's Legal Lens, a monthly series on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. Subscribe or download Legal Lens episodes on Apple or Spotify. Until next time.